It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app. And then you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show the co-authors of an article in The Conversation, which is entitled Indigenous Children's Book, Little Louie Aims to Curb COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy with a Culturally Relevant Story, or Little Lewis, as I guess you would correctly say that. But uh, Patrick Sullivan and Heather Owatch are the two co-authors. They're here to talk about this article. Patrick Sullivan is the Senior Research Assistant at Morningstar Lodge at the University of Saskatchewan. Heather is the research assistant or a research assistant assistant at Morningstar Lodge at the University of Saskatchewan. And I'll tell you a little bit more about each of them right now. So Patrick, after completing his honors at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Patrick pursued a master's of public health at the University of Victoria. He moved towards public health. Uh, his Rather, his move towards public health was largely inspired by the persisting and ser- severe inequities experienced by the original and inhabitants of the place he fortunately calls home and therefore it was a logical choice to pursue a specialization in indigenous people's health and uh, Heather is a Nakoda and Plains Cree woman from the Okanasi First Nation located in Treaty 4 territory she's also has a parental ties to the carry the kettle of or Kagakin First Nation. Uh, her lineage roots also surround the area of Treaty Fork. Uh, Heather, did I get that right? Kagakin? Is that the... Uh, a quite, quite, quite close. Uh, Okanese First Nation and Chagakin. Uh, Chagakin. Okay, thank you so much for correcting me on that. And welcome to both of you uh, to the show. Heather, a little bit more about yourself. You hold a bachelor's degree in Indigenous Studies uh, as well from the uh, as a diploma in Indigenous Communication Arts from the First Nations University of Canada. And you are currently enrolled as a master in a master's degree in public policy at the University of Saskatchewan. And uh, as we, I mentioned, a research assistant at the Morning Star Lodge. So once again, welcome to both of you to talk about as I said off the top, the Indigenous Children's book, Little Louie or Little Lewis, that aims to curb COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy with culturally relevant storyline. And uh, I appreciate you both taking the time to join us on the show. Patrick and Heather, welcome. Thanks for having us, David. Definitely excited to be here. For sure. Thank you for having us, David. It's our pleasure and my pleasure to have you on the show to talk about this. But I'm guessing there are advantages to this story because of the intergenerational trauma that uh, Indigenous people have have suffered over the years and over generations. Yeah, for sure. And um, the intergenerational trauma is a lot of what makes hesitancy within Indigenous communities unique. Um, but more about how, how this little Louis came about, it, it really wasn't even our idea. It mm. came from community. And that... Okay will probably come up several times throughout the interview, but we really are entirely guided by community. We have community research advisory committees or CRACs Mm -hmm. composed of elders, knowledge keepers, key decision makers, community health workers, or people with lived experience that come from the communities we work with. So it, uh, little Louie, it's, it's, um, the specific culture it's reflecting is Métis. So Louie, like, like Louis Riel, um, mm-hmm. 
That came from Star Blanket Cree Nation, actually. Mm. We are in a partnership right now with Solutions for Kids in Pain, or SKIP, and they wanted to combat vaccine hesitancy within Indigenous communities. And we are, <laughs> we're well-equipped to help them out within that. So they approached us, and we had conversations about ways we could tackle hesitancy. And we came to a lot of pretty interesting uh, recommendations, but we still hadn't talked to community so after we had these initial conversations, the obvious next step for us was to go to community and talk to them. And that's where our CRAC uh, at Star Blanket Cree Nation actually immediately pointed towards the need for <laughs> a children's book for Indigenous kids that mm. combats vaccine hesitancy. Mm. A lot of the people on these CRACs, you know, they, they grew up without medical information that yeah. respected or reflected yeah. their culture. Yeah. So they, re they recognized the need to reverse this trend. And then from there, the partnership just kind of uh, everyone brought their expertise to the table. Skip was bringing their needle fear expertise and recommendations and Morningstar Lodge. We have almost unparalleled experience ethically engaging with indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And from there, there was really several different perspectives that all came together to make a story that we feel is going to be really meaningful and really speak to indigenous kids who might be experiencing understandably experiencing hesitancy around around vaccination right mm -hmm. heather I'm, i want to ask you something in a moment to follow up what uh what patrick was just saying there and patrick i was really happy to hear what you said about getting uh getting community and being guided by community uh your article of course uh, references that as well uh, just from previous uh, encounters with indigenous people through history and how researchers have come in and uh, done what they wanted to do leave the community and uh, never they've never heard from again Heather uh, when you you saw this idea of, of being uh, getting going back to the community getting the community involvement and getting their say uh, wh what were your thoughts Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, well, myself, as someone from one of the 13 communities mm -hmm. that we primarily partner and work with, mm -hmm. uh, the Fall Hills Coquille Tribal Council mm -hmm. is consisted of 13, uh, 11 to 13 different communities. So being from uh, a community that is... Um, is working alongside uh, both as a CRAC uh, component, but also as just as general community membership. It's extremely important. I myself, as a research assistant with this Indigenous-led uh, health lab, find it, uh, uh, um, and then much like Patrick said, unparalleled compared to uh, we see other different approaches that are being done, um, but we're consistently um, guided by uh, elders, whether it's through CRAC, uh, the CRAC component, or whether it's through the general um uh, projects itself um, we are also guided through ceremony as well and mm -hmm. i think that that's something that is important to mention mm -hmm. when we talk about little louis and when we talk about the stories and in the story of little louis itself has a lot of historical uh oral history that you'll find if you've uh, read the storyline mm -hmm. and i think that's extremely important um to the idea of how we as researchers, especially um, myself as an Indigenous researcher um, or Indigenous research assistant, um, are, are literally um, led by community for community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely important to, um, it's, a, it's a change and it's a change that is needed. And Morningstar Lodge um, has been active in, in that approach. Um, and, and that's something that we don't often see in, uh, in history and in the present moment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the, the other thing your article points out, and I'm guessing this is somewhat directed towards the non-Indigenous population that may not understand about the encounters that Indigenous people have had. We all have heard about residential schools. We all know about uh, some of the things that went on there. This kind of thing that you point out around the anti-vax uh, sort of movement, that this is not the case with many Indigenous people. It's because of that relationship that has has happened for generations within the First Nation community about about the hesitancy of of, of trusting. Mm-hmm. Basically, it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I mean, and just a, one thing to mention too is um, a general sort of COVID nineteen stat is seventy five percent of eligible Canadians uh, have the single dose, but there is still um, quite a percentage of of Canadians, both Indigenous um, and non Indigenous, yeah. who um, who haven't uh, received a single or second dose vaccination, right. and that whether it's um, <clears throat> through vaccine hesitation, um, I think uh, the, the important uh, factor for uh, when it comes to vaccine hesitation is uh, like you had mentioned is the long-standing history um, that is a very um, hideous history that Indigenous peoples, our mm-hmm. communities have faced and uh, continue to face. There is um, there is a little bit of distrust in health and uh, and the way of uh, and accessibility to health. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that, uh, that that speaks for a lot of its, itself. And I think mm-hmm. but being able to uh, recognize those um, that history and, and work. Uh, again, uh, as, a, as an Indigenous-led health lab, we're really taking that um, that to heart because mm-hmm. we have experienced those. We come from generations. I come from generations of Indian residential school survivors, mm-hmm. and um, I come from communities that have had anthropologists come in, right. you know, almost a hundred years ago, uh, learn the language, learn some stuff, uh, see some artifacts, take yeah. them, and you know, you see them all over in all these different yeah. uh, capacities, and yeah. it's not just health-related. Yeah. Uh, that that happens on all approaches. Yep. And so, um, you know, by looking at, by, by keeping that component, uh, by looking at that um, and going about with this research and, and actively listening is uh, is a good start. And I think that that's something that um, Morningstar Lodge, we've really, when it came to the Little Louis project and any approach that we have, that's something um, we come, because uh, a lot of us do come from experience. Yep. Uh, appreciate you saying that. Um, Patrick, you mentioned both Morningstar as well as Star Blanket Cree Nation and Solutions for Kids in Pain, the skip. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about Morningstar Lodge? Yeah, so Morningstar Lodge is an Indigenous community-based uh, health research lab. So we uh, everything we do is guided by those community research advisory committees, those CRACs. Mm. Um, they are the ones that determine our priorities. The community priorities are our priorities. Community success is our success. Mm. Um, so it always starts with conversation. It always starts with sitting down. Mm. Um, well, right now it's been Zoom, obviously, but mm. uh, sitting down, you know, we'll start with a prayer, respecting culture, mm. and we just ask, what do you guys need? Right. And then from there, they may say, well, whatever, just, doesn't really matter what issue they identify then we go into the academic sphere and we look for funding and we look for opportunities to help them um, mm-hmm. but everything we do we don't just document uh, deficits that would be right. negative academics which has right. gone kind of hand in hand with the yeah. helicopter research yep. we've kind of described yep. where yeah you just come in <laughs> gather data leave never yep. to be heard of again right um, so <clears throat> pardon me yeah so we um 
we go in, we, we get their direction. And then throughout the whole research process, which is solution oriented, we continue to engage with these CRACs at every single decision. Um, and this is really, it's actually to adhere to the UN Declaration on the mm-hmm. Rights of Indigenous People, which mm-hmm. Canada has adopted and mm-hmm. maybe not fully implemented yet, but I right. think we're seeing some progress as well as ethical guidelines. We right. need to have these Indigenous people at the helm of any research that affects their life. Yeah. And it's really, it's all to fulfill the right of self-determination, of which yeah. colonization has worked pretty darn hard to right. strip from uh, Indigenous peoples and communities. But, you know, the way we've been doing research, it obviously hasn't been working. Mm-hmm. That's like abundantly clear to anyone who's familiar with the literature. Yeah. So obviously a shift is needed. And I think that's where stuff that's, that's what's inspired stuff like the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people, ethical guidelines. You have stuff like OCAP and fair and care principles today that can help research, help guide research to away from the misguided practices of the past and towards solutions that are meaningful, relevant and sustainable for communities and exactly how that looks it's impossible for me to describe a strict kind of methodology because you know the more detail i i provide the less self-determination our mm. c have within that research right. process yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah nicely said um it also has, has set up this imbalance of power that's you know that's mm. been prevalent throughout history as well uh, because uh, the, the information is power and if it doesn't come back to the community it it leaves the one side without that uh, without that information um and mm-hmm. so uh heather how when you when you know uh, that that this is this this relationship that is set up, basically it's it's establishing trust, and I guess it has established that trust. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and just going back to um, what uh, you know, even just just a simple example of this particular uh, partnership that created uh, Skip approached us, and they wanted you know, like I, like Patrick said, to reduce needle fear, um, and, and they really wanted to engage with Indigenous communities. So uh, Morningstar Lodge had uh, you know, we went to community, we talked, had those initial conversations, and there was another project that had come up and was uh, sort of in the works of starting, mm-hmm. and it was the All About Me booklets. Um, which was uh, one of the solutions that they had come up with that we had journeyed along beside them. Um, And that's kind of, you know, from that one project, that's when uh, Little Louie was recognized uh, or a a need for um, uh, Indigenous children literature was needed. And so that's sort of the birth of Little Louie and the conception. And so even just that partnership, you see that there was already a pre-existing partnership um, between Skip and Morningstar Lodge and Mm. the Star Blanket Cree Nation Mm. uh, that uh, that had come together um, to create not just Little Louie, but a few other different um, projects that came about. Nice. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests on the show are Patrick Sullivan and Heather Awatch, and they are the people that co-authored an article in The Conversation. It is entitled Indigenous Children's Book, Little Louie Aims to Curb COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy with a Culturally Relevant Story. So, uh, how how long is this book now out? Is it being circulated? Uh, and and what is the future looking like for how this this is going to be rolling out, et cetera? Uh, Patrick? Yeah. So, again, it, it goes back to the, the community research advisory committees. And actually, as we record this interview right now, a draft of an illustrated draft of Little Louie is mm-hmm. being presented to the Star Bank Blanket Cree Nation mm. Community Research Advisory Committee. And it's important to recognize these CRAC members 
they they often have storytelling and cultural expertise that far exceeds that of Skip or Morningstar Lodge. Mm. So it's quite likely that they're going to read it and say, this is great, but it needs a change here. It needs a change here. It mm-hmm. needs a change there. And at Morningstar Lodge, um, there's four R's to doing research with Indigenous people. And one of them is respect. Mm. And we always respect the expertise of our of our leaders of the C-Rex. So it's always difficult to have a firm timeline set out because you do need to be flexible. Sure. And I do think that actually skip uh, Dr. Bernie and her team, they really do deserve to be commended for respecting that the flexibility needed and the at times patience needed for these things to come together at Morningstar Lodge. This is what we do. So we know that that flexibility is needed, but you know, skip is entering water that they're maybe not as, comfortable in and they've been awesome throughout that whole process um we're definitely hoping to get the the booklet the book out as soon as possible to kind of help help people that we're really starting to face uh unvaccinated people are really starting to have to face significant disruptions to engage in in normal life so i think it's a pretty crucial time to get it out but um yeah Patrick, I uh, just lost you. Oh, you're back. There you are. Okay. Well, you, were, you, were just, you were just saying it's a pretty crucial time to. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty crucial time to get get this information out and yes. to help people overcome their their hesitancy around around the vaccination. And you know, being hesitant or about getting jabbed with a needle and having a you know some substance injected into your body. Yeah. I don't think that's that's actually it's a it's a very common thing. Right. Um, I would say that I was hesitant to get the vaccine. I knew I was going to get it, but I still experienced hesitancy. And I think that it's the literature would suggest that it's really it's common in a lot of people. Right. It doesn't mean a lot of people are anti-vaxxers, of course. But um, in terms of timeline, yeah, I think soon is what I can say. Yeah. Definitely a big step is, like I said, occurring as we do this interview, as we're presenting mm-hmm. Little Louie to the C-Rack. And we're really excited to to get their input because we know that it'll leave the story stronger. Yes. Um, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see what they say. I can't imagine too, anything too significant will right. need to be changed. So right. we're looking at getting it out as soon as possible. But then even how it is out, whether it's just a, a PDF people can download, mm. whether we're mailing copies of the book to right. our our community partners yeah. or whether you have to pay for it, that will also to some extent come from the CRAC. Mm-hmm. They'll kind of mm-hmm. say, listen, like whatever, $5 would be very prohibitive mm. uh, for this book. Right. So it needs to be made free. And then again, we respect that and we yeah. listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, when you were just talking there about hesitancy in general, I remember thinking when just uh, without putting anything else on top of this, uh, the way how quickly they rolled out these vaccines, uh, we all had questions around, mm-hmm. you know, how good they're going to be, the side effects, et cetera, et cetera, all of those kind of things. So we were learning not only about these vaccines, we were also learning about the, the new technical advances that were happening or that had happened uh, that allowed them to develop these so quickly without going through the years and years and years of normal uh, research that they would would do uh, in bringing out a, a new vaccine towards anything that we would be, like you said, injecting into our bodies. 
Yeah, hundred and and that was of course there's all the historical reasons for hesitancy yep. within indigenous communities, yep. but you know, depending how rural or isolated their community is, they still exist in modern Canada. They're still exposed to the same factors that Absolutely. are leaving, you know, roughly fifteen percent of eligible Canadians still not getting vaccinated, right? Yep. And that exact the limited and late information around COVID nineteen and the vaccine, yep. that was also identified as a source of hesitancy for indigenous people. Right. Yep. So it's important, I think, to not just to when you're thinking about indigenous hesitancy within, you know, around COVID-19 or in general, it's important to recognize that, yeah, there's the historical factors, mm -hmm. but they're not they're not like stuck in the past. They exist today. They're exposed to the same the same reasons that, again, are keeping millions of people around the world kind of hesitant. Sure. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, Heather, I, I want to ask you something about the Morningstar Lodge, which we, we talked about. Uh, Patrick, both you and Patrick are associated uh, as research uh, assistants, and Patrick is a senior research assistant, assistant with the Morningstar Lodge. It's associated with the University of Saskatchewan. Can you describe to me how that relationship or, or what, how, it, how it is uh, fitted in within the, the university? Mm -hmm. um, well, the Morningstar Lodge is uh, very much uh, led by Dr. Kerry Barassa, mm. and um, and uh, and and that partnership has been um, has been around for a couple of years. Uh, we have had uh, other partnerships in the past over the years. Um, Morningstar Lodge has been around for over a decade. Um, we are located in Regina, Saskatchewan, so um, although we're in partnership with the University of Saskatchewan, our head office is uh, in Regina, Saskatchewan. So um, that partnership is um, is an is an example of of really the steps uh, towards. Uh, having you know health labs such as the Morningstar Lodge be mm -hmm. able to be in partnership, but also be independent in the way in which we do research. Right. Um, okay. So um, Heather, can you now tell me and and Patrick can fill in areas here. Tell me a little bit about what the little Louis story uh, takes us through. How does it? How does this bring us into these these kind of relevant information that we need around around uh, vaccine hesitancy? Mm -hmm. Well, the story of Little Louis starts off with um, a young boy or a, a child, if you will, um, that is uh, that is that is already in the know of, of getting the vaccine, mm. that that's something that's going to be happening. Right. And so Little Louis himself um, is preparing, if you will, for his COVID-19 vaccination. Okay. Um, with that, uh, the story shares his feelings, his frustrations, um, you know, with the safety restrictions and just the vaccine in general. And, um, you know, having a support system um, around him, his family, his grandmother and his mother or, you know, his cookum and his mother mm. um, uh, are there to listen and sort of help him um, and keep him um, grounded in the sense of uh, what what the vaccine is really for. And it's for community safety. Um, so as little Louis going through these uh, nervousness and this hesitation, um, his family has decided to create um a little Louis out of paper. So this small cutout to sort of bring with him to his vaccine appointment. And as little Louis is um, drawing and, you know, going through this, this, uh, this small cutout, I, I guess, of, of himself, uh, his fat, his grandmother shares a story about the brave Métis leader, Gabriel Dumont and his mm. rifle, mm. Uh, which was called Le Petit. So, um, you know, there was a correlation between him and his his trusty little cutout mm. piece of himself and, and, and uh, Gabriel Dumont with his um, 
with his rifle. And so right before the vaccination appointment happens, little Louis dreams of this uh, fishing adventure um, where uh, a needle had, instead of a fish, a needle kind of gets reeled in. Ah. And so there's a moment where little Louis is um, facing this, bravely facing this needle. Um, and, you know, through his bravery and through his triumph, um, he's able to sort of catch uh, this big catch, which turns into a fish eventually. Um, so as little Louis sharing his dream the next morning with his family, they're telling him, you know, they're deciphering his dream and, and interpreting it as um, his his way of facing his fears. Mm. So as throughout the, you know, throughout the storyline, he goes to the vaccine appointment with his uh, little Louis or Le Petit beside him. And um, right before he gets there, the doctor or the nurse, the healthcare uh, professional asks him um, if he would like to give the uh, little Louis mm-hmm. the cutout, um, the vaccine first. So <laughs> after observing that, uh, little Louis felt he was ready for the vaccine. And voila, just like that, the vaccine is, is done, the process. And little Louis and big Louis are now protected from the COVID-19 vaccine. So that's the story of little Louis and his uh, his. Um, his bravery nice now is this going to be available do you think or are you have you been talking about this idea that it's going to be available in uh, in, in different languages yeah um there is talks about um again like like had patrick had said we do uh, go under the guidance yep. uh, of um the community CRAC, and so um but there has been talks about it potentially being um transcribed or uh translated into midchief yep. um and that just would depend on our community um availability and just how uh sort of the timeline of little Louis itself but that would be amazing if it was um eventually translated into Michif and, um, and maybe a few of the uh, five official languages of yeah. Uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah, it sure would. The other thing, uh, you know, when people go to the to look at the article in the conversation, if they read through it and, and once they, they do get down to the bottom, they will see a, a very uh, nice uh, illustration of little Louie there as well. And um, I can't help but think how well this would translate also to maybe a uh, an animated version. Had, had you guys talked about that at all? It, it hasn't come up with our C-Rack yet, um, but one of the nice things about Morningstar Lodge is really that everything we do is in partnership. So maybe we don't have the experience to mm. animate something like yep. we are a research lab, yep. Um, yep. Yep. but we're always entering partnerships and that's that's definitely something we're considering. We were thinking of ha- maybe having a uh, an elder read the story mm. and have that. Uh, available to people so that they could digest it and yeah. you know video format. Yep, but that's it's a great idea and it's uh, we may need to find some funding for it. But <laughs> yeah, that well, would be amazing. We we do think that little Louis again, depending on community input, we do think there's a good chance that it'll evolve into several different stories targeting different issues as they yeah. arise. Right, and, and, and just being flexible. Yeah, and that's a great uh, solution. Also, you just mentioned uh, of having it just uh, uh, put into an audio format by someone reading the story, which then could be available um, to people online and or maybe through community radio um, within mm. the communities itself. You know, it's uh, some wonderful opportunities there that could uh, evolve out of this if you guys are given the opportunity, and the community, of course, is is um, willing to to go in that direction. So uh, congratulations to you guys for for doing this and, um, you know, wish you all the best with this in the future and and keep us uh, abreast of how it's going.
Thank you for having us, David. Thanks for having us. And if if anyone uh, that's listening wants to know more about Morningstar Lodge, indigenoushealthlab.com. Nice. Indigenoushealthlab.com. They're the voices of Patrick Sullivan and Heather Owatch, and they are researchers associated with Morningstar Lodge at the University of Saskatchewan. Patrick being the senior research assistant, Heather a research assistant. And we've been talking to them about their article that they co-authored in The Conversation, which you can find online at theconversation.ca. It is entitled, Indigenous Children's Book, Little Louie Aims to Curb COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy with a Culturally Relevant Story. Go check it out. And... uh, yeah, some great stuff in there and some ideas that could be used beyond this, the uh, printed word, uh, which the communities and other people may be able to take advantage of. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, I have the co-authors of an article that was in the conversation, and it is entitled, People Who Feel More Connected to the Natural World Are More Likely to Support Reconciliation. I thought that was an interesting title, and I wanted to speak with the people who put this together. And so, I have with me here on the show, the co-authors. And I have with me Catherine Starsick, and she's an Associate Professor and Social Justice Laboratory Director at the University of Manitoba, as well as Aaliyah Fontaine, and she is a PhD candidate in the Clinical Psychology Program, also at the University of Manitoba. Catherine uh, is also the founding member of the Center for Human Rights Research and a research affiliate of the National Center for the Truth and Reconciliation, as well as the Center for Social Science Research and Policy. Uh, she was originally born in Poland. Well, not, yeah, she can't be originally born in born in two different places so she was born in Poland (laughs) and then she uh, came over to Canada when she was seven years old. Aaliyah is uh, also the uh, board research in has broad research interests rather and is uh, an intergroup in intergroup relations attitudes uh, towards social issues and indigenous mental wellness so it is a great pleasure to welcome them both to the show today. Welcome. Hi David thank you so much. It's Hi. yeah. Thanks it's, for having me on. Oh well, it's our pleasure to have you both here, and thank you so much. Now, your article: people who feel more connected to the natural world are more likely to support reconciliation. Uh, I wanted to to ask you about that, and we'll get into that first. But I want to ask you about this, and that is the article's been out for about a month now, and I'm wondering who would like to field this question about what kind of feedback you've had so far on this. Uh, Catherine, would you like me to? Uh, sure, yeah, I'm happy for you to lead. For sure. Um, so you know, there there has been. Uh, it looks like quite a bit of interest in this uh, in this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like lots of people uh, have been kind of reading the article, um, and there has been, um, you know, some some um, people who've kind of been retweeting it on things like Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had um, uh, some people from the university who've also been interested in talking with us a little bit more about the about the topic as well mm-hmm. um, from the Manitoban, which is our uh, our university. Um, um, uh, news um, news site as well. Okay. Yep. 
Great. Um, now, I, I understand from reading the article that this partly came out of discussions you had with uh, a group of people at the university, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and it was around the idea of what does reconciliation mean? Um, so maybe it, maybe it would be helpful just to kind of give a little bit of a sense of um, sort of the research um, that we do in our lab more broadly. Okay. Um, so, so very broadly in our in our lab, um, we're very interested in um, things like intergroup relations and how people uh, feel and think about um, issues related to social justice, mm. um, particularly issues that um, impact Indigenous peoples. Okay. Um, and, and recently, uh, Catherine has been the lead on a project um, over the last several years um, that has been seeking to, um, you know, better understand what reconciliation means to people in Canada, um, with the hope that we can develop um, a way of measuring and tracking progress uh, toward reconciliation. So, in order to kind of track, um, you know, whether or not we're moving forward when it comes to reconciliation, we have to be able to understand what it actually means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and reconciliation is such a broad and multifaceted um, construct, right? It means different things to, to different people. Um, so we so we run, you know, a bunch of different studies um, in our lab um, that uh, kind of get at this idea of what reconciliation means uh, to different people. And this one project uh, that focuses on um, sort of the relationship between people's attitudes toward reconciliation and attitudes toward the natural world. Um, it's kind of one of several different studies that we've that we've looked at. Um, so when it comes to uh, you know what reconciliation means, uh, kind of in the early days of of doing this research, um, I know that I kind of first immediately went to reading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, final report on the Indian residential school system, uh, and that had come out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of before, uh, you know, reading the TRC's report in its um, entirety, I had kind of been thinking about, you know, reconciliation as involving different elements such as um, truth telling, um, education, um, kind of an awareness of the past, that acknowledgement of harm, um, addressing some of those structural issues uh, that continue to really negatively impact um, Indigenous peoples and, and strengthening relationships. Mm. But after I kind of read through the TRC's final report, um, my thinking started to change um, and expand a little bit. Um, I really realized that, um, you know, Indigenous peoples hold uh, more of a broader view when it uh, comes to what reconciliation must involve. And there was a couple of quotes in there that had really stuck out to me. Um, One was kind of that, um, you know, reconciliation is is never going to occur um, unless we're reconciled with the earth, um, because our relationship with the earth and other living beings is is really important for, for reconciliation. So that's kind of where the, uh, the, uh, the original idea for this, for this project ended up uh, kind of coming out. Hmm. And, and you know, it, it is interesting because we find ourselves in a situation where we almost need to start looking at reconciling with the earth because of the climate uh, crisis we find ourselves in and because of the fossil fuels and all the kind of questions that are coming up around those issues that you know are separate from the uh, the truth and reconciliation and its report but it definitely is tied in there and specifically speaks to uh, if we are going to in some ways 
survive as as a human species on this planet if we don't uh, start to understand and work together with the planet uh, instead of just this idea of take take take. Uh, so it is a really interesting uh, approach. And and so you started to expand your thinking around this and looking at that, which of course goes hand in hand with indigenous thinking, of course, with uh, with the planet and living light on the land and, and living in harmony with Mother Earth. So what did you, where did that thinking take you? Absolutely. So I, so I agree with, um, with everything that you, uh, that you had just said. So when I was kind of reading through uh, the TRC's report and reading about how survivors would talk repeatedly um, about the importance of also reconciling with the earth and, and all living beings, um, it, it reminded me of some social psychological literature um, that I had come across um, before, just in, just in readings that I had done uh, previously. Um, that had also kind of talked a little bit about this idea of how the way that we relate to uh, other living beings, um, as well as the earth, is also related to how we relate to other people. There's some similarities in, in thinking there. Um, so, so, you know, for me, like it's, um, it's always really great and interesting whenever I see, um, you know, real similarities, like striking similarities when it comes to um, you know, everything that Indigenous people say, our uh, elders, our traditional knowledge keepers, um, when that's also shared by like other people within, say, the social psychological um, uh, field as well. Uh, so, it, so it had reminded me of research that I had also, um, similar research that I had also read about before. Mm. Uh, Catherine, if you don't mind me asking, um, Aliyah mentioned that you had started this project some years ago, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how that came about? Yeah, so uh, it was really this uh, Aliyah's reading of this report. And then we uh, decided that it would be a good choice for a student's honors thesis, this particular project. So we uh, designed the study and then Leora Strand um, ran the study for her honors thesis. And um, so that was kind of just a, a side project in a larger program of research. Um, and we uh, thought that perhaps... Um, so just to give you a little bit more sense of the research, sure. um, the neat thing about the, the study, um, as I see it, I mean, everybody's got a different perspective on what they think is neat. Um, but basically, you know, what we know is that people are more likely to want to um, help others if they consider those people within their sphere of moral concern. So, you know, maybe you don't think about it explicitly, but most people have some sense of who's worthy or, or what's worthy of moral concern, um, which predicts your likelihood of actually doing something about, you know, injustice. Um, and that if you, uh, people who are more connected to nature are more likely to include more things within their uh, sphere of moral concern. So they have this like greater circle of concern. And so the further you get out, if you are concerned about things like the natural world, then uh, normally what's within that sphere are, are people who are unlike you as well. Mm. Um, and so the neat thing about this is that people um, who have like a broader um, sense of what 
is deserving of moral concern and people who are concerned about rocks, rivers, trees, uh, and other animals um, are more likely to be concerned about other people as well. And perhaps this is unsurprising from some perspectives, but, um, but certainly it's, it's a, like in, for some people's worldviews, it, it is more novel. Um, and so we, we thought, you know, perhaps uh, what this might mean, um, well, other than people who are connected to the natural world are different in some ways than people who are less connected, is that maybe there's something special about the natural world. Um, and our research can't speak to this directly, um, but certainly in the future, it would be interesting to understand whether or not, you know, being in nature uh, changes how people treat each other. And so if you um, think about negotiations or reconciliation, often these kinds of events happen inside buildings mm. <laughs> that don't look particularly great, mm. that don't have any real connection to nature frequently. Mm. Um, and perhaps, you know, some of those things, especially when they're really important, um, could happen in natural spaces and might be more effective there. Mm. Um, our data can't speak to that, um, but that would be the next logical step. Right. So, um, Aliyah, just going back to the question about uh, you started to put this uh, this question out to people. You started to uh, throw that out to a bunch of, of, of different people, asking them this question about their connection, I guess their moral ideas around uh, their connection to the natural world. Yeah, for sure. So maybe I'll just explain a little bit more about what the actual study um, procedure kind of looked like. Please. Uh, just so that there's um, um, listeners just have a little bit of a better sense of what we actually did. Sure. So what we had done is that we had recruited um, some students from uh, the University of Manitoba uh, here on uh, here on Treaty One. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had them all answer uh, a questionnaire, uh, a survey um, that had asked questions related to, uh, you know, how connected they felt to nature um, so when we're trying to get a sense of, you know, how connected somebody feels to nature, we don't just ask kind of one question. We'll ask a series sure. of different questions. Um, so an example of one um, question that we might ask people is something like, um, I often feel a sense of oneness with the natural world around me. Um, and participants would rate on a scale of um, uh, like one to seven, the extent to which they agree with that statement. Um, so that was kind of how, you know, we, we get at measuring uh, things like connectedness to nature. Um, you know, we had also measured uh, something that we call uh, animal-human continuity. Uh, so that's kind of the extent to which people see uh, humans and other animals as, as similar and equal or, or dissimilar and unequal. So again, uh, when we're putting out this questionnaire survey uh, to, to all of our participants, they were rating the extent to which they agreed with statements like humans have a soul, but animals do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to moral expansiveness, um, you know, we, we uh, presented all of our participants with a long list of um, both human and, and non-human entities. Um, so some examples might be... Um, uh, you know, 
Banff National Park, a bee, chicken, um, a Canadian citizen, uh, various different entities. And we ask people to kind of rate um, where in their moral circle of moral concern they might uh, place that whatever that entity is. So kind of outside of the moral boundaries of moral concern or within their inner circle mm. of, of moral concern. Um, and then, and then finally, you know, we ask people their attitudes toward reconciliation, how supportive they are of reconciliation, how positive their attitudes are toward mm. reconciliation. Mm. So they might, um, you know, rate the extent to which they agree with um, a question like, I have a positive attitude toward reconciliation. Mm. Hmm. And, and were you surprised by the findings that you found that, that people that have this this connectedness to the natural world or more supportive of or likely to support reconciliation? Um, well, I wasn't uh, surprised by it because this was um, kind of what our, uh, our hypotheses were. Mm. Uh, this is what we were kind of expecting to, to find. Um, so it, it was encouraging to, uh, to see that uh, come out in the, in the results as, as we had expected it to. Did you, did you find anything else from doing this in terms of uh, information that you weren't looking for, but that did come out of the the research? Not that I can think of quite off of the off of the top of my head. We did have some um, kind of specific questions that we were looking to to answer. Um, and we did end up. Unless Catherine, are you? Is there I do question? have. I do have a story about something that we did sure. that we is not in this article, okay. and that I think merits some um, quick discussion. Okay. And so we actually thought to ourselves, well, as a follow up study, you know what we should do? We should expose people to nature, and then we can uh, see whether or not these things change, mm. because that's the like next logical step, mm. so that you could understand if. This is if we can cause these changes. Sure. Oh, yeah, but you know, <laughs> we did it like uh, experimental scientists. We brought people into the laboratory. We showed them pictures of nature, you know, <laughs> animals right. uh, or nature scenes or pe or people. And we wanted to understand how this might change people's attitudes hmm. towards others. Um, and it just didn't work. Um, and, and I think that the moral from that particular um, uh, failure of, you know, an experiment is that seeing pictures on your screen of nature is not the same <laughs> as being in nature. Right. And so there, I, you know, some of uh, the colleagues, our colleagues at the University of Manitoba are actually taking students out onto the land, mm. um, particularly in Native Studies, uh, and teaching, you know, in spaces outside of the university. Right. And so one would expect that, you know, experiences like that, um, that provide people an opportunity to meaningfully connect in nature. And you don't have to go outside the city to do these things. There right. are in most cities, thankfully, like lots of uh, green spaces across Canada, right. um, you know, maybe going out in, into these kinds of spaces when we're, we're teaching about history or, um, you know, difficult topics might be a place where people can approach things with, a, you know, a greater sense of um, expansiveness. But it, we didn't, you, yeah, so I, there's this brief side note of what didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
interesting. But your article does point to something about taking uh, people and and putting them, or at least saying these kind of things and education don't have to take place within the four walls of a, of a building. They can and possibly should take place outside in the natural world, um, where. I guess what we're getting at here or what you're getting at here with you're saying is that it has an influence somehow on how our perceptions may or, or, or may be viewed once we are exposed to those things. I think so. And I mean, maybe not consciously, but lots of peace initiatives are uh, based in nature. So there's this group um, that brings Israeli um, and Palestinian kids together called Seeds of Peace mm. in the U.S. And they go and they spend a summer together, um, you know, outdoors doing things. Mm. Uh, and, you know, uh, they could have just as easily brought them to a campus and spent it inside in buildings. Um, right. But it's a it's a different kind of space. It's an outdoor space. And, and I do think that when you're outside in nature that several things happen, you know, people just tend to be happier. Um, and, and maybe that calmness that comes with being in nature and having a greater sense of, you know, you're just one piece of a bigger whole. Uh, Cause often people experience awe when they're in nature and uh, much more so there than in any other kind of context um, that, perhaps then they can see how we're all connected mm. and then therefore needing to, to care for each other more um, than if you're on a zoom call or, <laughs> you know, in some indoor space. Yeah. You know, there seems to be another question here. It keeps pulling at me and I'm not sure if I can, can uh, specifically articulate it well, but it, it's just on the whole, our, are we as people predetermined in some ways? I, I, I guess only because throughout this whole conversation, something has been playing over in my head. And it was when I was a kid. Now, I am of indigenous heritage on my, uh, on my dad's side. Uh, well, to some degree, you could argue it's on my mom's side as well, because she was Welsh, who are the first people of Great Britain. But I remember a situation when I was young. And it was, I went to climb a tree or something and, and I pulled on this branch. It wasn't a very big branch, but it ripped the branch off the tree. I felt horrible hmm. because I, I felt like I had, I had damage, had hurt the tree. And I never got that sense because I would see other kids playing and they'd rip branches off trees. They'd destroy like, you know, things. And, and it was like nothing. And I just kind of went, what's with me? What, what is that all about? So, uh, you know, I don't know what the question is there, but I'm, I'm wondering if there is a predetermination and why some people feel this connection, whereas other people don't. Where does that come from? Um, can I answer this question very quickly, Aaliyah, sure. and then you can add to it because your story uh, really resonates with me because last year a tree died in our front yard mm. and eventually we decided, well, it was black mm. and we were quite sad mm. and we cut it down, um, but then there was a stump left over yep. and eventually we decided uh, to grind down the stump and we didn't tell our kids that we'd be doing this before uh, the person arrived to grind down the stump. Mm. We didn't think 
anything of it really, but they were horrified mm-hmm. that that stump was being ground down. Wow. Like really, really upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's so interesting. They had like a relationship with that tree. Right, right. And that tree stump was like the last bit of it. And they would, you know, play on it, even with the stump. Mm. Uh, And I thought to myself, oh, um, that stump was actually hazard, but they saw it in a very different way. (laughs) Interesting. But Aaliyah, do you want to answer this question? Um, You know, I I suppose also what comes to mind, um, David, as as I was listening to your story and and Catherine, yours as well, is... um, you know, it, it feels like there's a certain, um, you know, we can feel empathy toward other people, but we can also feel, I think, empathy toward the natural world in a way as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I wish I could remember where I read this or, or heard this spoken once, but I do know that um, somewhere I've read that um, um, an Indigenous teaching is that, you know, if we can teach people to show care um, and, and love toward something like the most uh, delicate of flowers, mm-hmm. um, they will um, then expand that love and that care toward um, all other people and beings uh, as well. So it's, it's I, I, I couldn't answer um, where that, uh, that feeling of, of um, you know, empathy um, and love and care uh, comes from. Um, I'm sure there's many different determinants of it, but uh, I do think that it's something that, um, can also come from uh, kind of teaching people respect for um, uh, for all living beings um, is, is probably one uh, kind of element to it. Mm. David, I can speak to it a little bit more sure. um, as well. So what I would say in addition, Aaliyah, is like that I teach personality. And one of the things that I know about people in general is that, you know, there are all these differences around people. We share a lot in common, uh, but some people are uh, more inclined to connect, you know, empathetically to other people to feel, you know, what other people are feeling and also to connect to, you know, plants and animals in the same uh, way. So, that you definitely see that some people are more inclined to do this than others. Mm. And perhaps part of that is, um, you know, the things that, you know, people are taught as they're growing up. Um, So for example, at some point, you know, the kids, you know, either play roughly with a tree or something. And, and uh, we've, we've corrected that because, you know, like, why would, why would you want to do that? Um, and so I think sometimes that requires some teaching, mm. uh, but there's also some kids who are very, very concerned uh, mm. about these things. And that's a personality trait. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, uh, you know, Ali and I come from this world of social psychology where we think that the situation really matters. And so, you know, the people that are around you and what you learn in school, um, and, and in society, generally, like from other people, all this really affects how you interact with things, r- mm. irrespective of what your maybe uh, natural inclinations might be. Right. And so that there's because of this, there's a lot of opportunity for us to teach kids and adults, uh, you know, about the importance of this kind of broader respect. Mm. 
Sounds to me like this uh, idea of reconciliation that we are dealing with currently around what does that mean that certainly there are some specific things that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has come out with in in, in its calls to action that we can all take and that uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people uh, can work towards uh, as we try to rebuild this country uh, with uh, with a a better future. Uh, But it also sounds like there is, uh, on the broader front, um, we need to reconcile, as you guys are pointing out, with the planet in just many general ways that can help better our future and hopefully help us live longer and better uh, on this planet uh, for the future of all generations as we uh, try to come to terms with how we deal with climate crisis and uh, and many of the other things that we're currently dealing with here on the planet. I want to thank you both for uh, writing the article. It's very been very thought-provoking as we have discussed this. And uh, I want to thank you both for taking the time to join me on the show to talk about it. Thank you so much, David. It's been uh, a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, David. It's been lovely. Catherine Starzik is an associate professor and social justice laboratory director at the University of Manitoba. And Aaliyah Fontaine is a PhD candidate in the uh, clinical psychology program also at the University of Manitoba. And it's been a pleasure talking to them both about their article that they co-authored in the conversation. All right, that is this part of the show. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.